Over the Ball is brought to you by Soccer America. Soccer America, the soccer paper of record. Go to SoccerAmerica.com and sign up for your subscription today. And by Nella from Fitbiomics. A Harvard doctor has found a probiotic strain that is found in most world-class athletes. Not all probiotics are the same. More information on all our sponsors at overtheball.com slash sponsors. Call or text us at 424-229-2247. That's 424-229-2247. Hey, this is Bob Lee, and you're listening to Over the Ball with Kevin Flynn, the world's game from an American perspective. Hello, everybody, and welcome to a very special Over the Ball, a very special edition of Over the Ball. Now, I, I hate when they used to use that expression on television, you know, like on a very special full house. Like, oh, come on, really? How special can full house be? But look, today, uh, this is a really special broadcast because we have legendary soccer broadcaster and writer on today, uh, a man whose uh, 92nd birthday was celebrated last night in New York, uh, here in New York City, where I am this week. Uh, we're going to chat with Paul Gardner, uh, really a living legend, a walking encyclopedia of the game here and abroad. And uh, boy, I was at a dinner last night with about 14 people and uh, you know, Chris, it, I, I'm sure you know who Paul Gardner is. Yep. Uh, you're younger than me, but uh, it was soccer history was sitting at that table last night. Uh, when did Paul Gardner first hit your radar? Yeah, I think for me and, and for many soccer people in this country, you know, not coming up right now, but coming up a few years back, obviously, we yeah. all, when we first jumped into soccer, when we first jumped into football, he was the voice. He was the literature guy that put out the articles that we would read once a week when Soccer America came out or whatnot. It wasn't digital back then, right? So you were waiting for, right. for Soccer America to come, come out. And he was, he was one of the key writers. And uh, his feature was the thing that you went to. And there was a controversial aspect to it, but he covered the gamut. He covered college game, unlike anyone else. He was really passionate about the college game, which I really appreciated. And right. he covered all the Youth World Cups, the Major World Cups, the pro game across the world. And he was opinionated. It was something that, you know, you had to read to stay relevant. Yeah. You know, and, and it's, you know, I am a little older than you. And I was with a, a friend of mine, an old soccer player that I used to, you know, do the kick arounds with when I first moved to New York. You know, when your college and pro days were over and the guys get together in a gym and play indoors, you know, once a week. And it's, I got I play with the boys for an hour and a half and then have some beers. And I absolutely lived for those games, you know, to just catch up with my brethren and uh, shoot the shit, talk soccer. Um, and I hooked up with one of my old friends, Dave Dupuis, um, who owns a studio here, a photography studio. Uh, was a great player in his own day. And, you know, you say the name Paul Gardner, he's like, holy shit. Oh, Paul, my God. You know, he was the biggest deal. And when I first met Paul, I was so intimidated. I was just like, yeah. I felt like I was meeting Elvis, for God's yeah. sakes, because he's known as a bit of a curmudgeon. Yeah. Um, but once I, kn I knew him, you know, got to know him a little bit, he's just a He's just a shit stir, you know, he just, he's a, he's a kind of a, that's his little sense of humor, that kind of sarcastic ball busty. What, what do you don't know what you're talking about? You know, the kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, th look, there's a lot of people. I mean, he definitely stirred the pot. There's a lot of people in the American soccer landscape that didn't, you know, took offense to some of the things he was saying. Right, Cause he right. would, ch he would challenge the American way at the time and, and try to aspire to these other things that it was all subjective. So you couldn't really say who's right, who's wrong. But right. that, again, his opinion on in his pieces, that that was a lightning rod for the narrative at the time. So right. whether you agreed or you didn't, you had to know what he was saying. But at the end of the day, 
somebody was talking and we were see the thing with soccer and, and again going back you never wanted to say anything bad about soccer because there was there were too many people set shitting on soccer as it was you know like I, when i stopped playing american football people are like what are you doing you're throwing your athletic career away you're playing uh uh the soccer fag and all the, you know, the things that they would call us that were thrown at us. It's like, you know, it, it really the soccer teams. Okay. How come, how can we get more women than the, than the football team? I it's, it's kind of an odd uh, oxymoron there. So, uh, you know, but he got on, he did a, a documentary on Pele. He was one of the reasons Pele came to New York. Uh, he used to try to explain soccer to Jim McKay and almost like Howard Cosell controversy was good because you know everybody watched Howard Cosell. Some people didn't like him. Some people loved him. But it was, you're talking soccer, and people, they disagree. So at the end, it was really good. But I wish you were on the East Coast last night because I sat down at dinner with an amazing amount of soccer history that was sitting there. First of all, I'm sitting with Tab, Tab Ramos, probably the greatest player this country has produced. And the great players, like Claudio or Landon, will say that to you as well. Uh, Sunil Gulati was there. And Sunil was, you know, Sunil was like a manager for the state a team that I was on in Connecticut. Connecticut, yeah. He picked up balls. He drove the vans. The man loved soccer. He knew he wasn't a great player, but he loved the game. And he took some heat at the end of his run there at FIFA, but he became on the board of FIFA that got, first of all, before that, getting the World Cup here to this country. They had to hustle their asses off, those guys, to get that here. Um, so he was there. Jim Trecker, who was a writer and, and brought 94 here. Uh, Joe Fraga, who I had heard about a lot. He played at St. John's. Now he's Pele's manager. Uh, he worked for the UN for their sports commission for a long time. Uh, Lori Mifflin, whose name I knew from all the New York newspapers. She um, covered the Jets and the Mets and the Yankees and the Cosmos. And mm. she loved it. She really, she really did. So at Father Edwin from St. Benedict's, where it produced all those great players, including Greg Berhalter, Ted Claudia Howard. Arena. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, Ted Howard was there. He, was, uh, he started the 94 uh, World Cup games, getting them here and helping get them organized. Um, and then he went to MLS, Dan Woog, who's uh, you know, a writer and was a high school coach. So, man, I'm sitting there. And then a guy named Arnie Ramirez. And I just say this quickly because I know I want to. LIU. LIU. And um, I asked him who the best player he ever coached was. And I said, come on, was it Rich Chinapu? And he said, yeah. And, and man, dude, I'm telling you, that dude could play. Uh, he was in Dallas when I was in Dallas for a little while. And I'm like, I don't know what game he's playing, but uh, it's not what I'm doing. <laughs> I'm telling you. But Arnie Ramirez was the coach at LIU. I'm at the UConn soccer tournament and the indoor tournament in the winter. And I knew that he ran the Cosmos soccer camp. And I went over to him. I was you know, totally intimidated. I said, hey, I'd love to be a counselor there. He said, sure, you know, uh, you can play. And I, I get it. So, so I show up as a counselor. Dude, I'm the only white English-speaking dude on the coaching staff. And what was great about it was it was Pele soccer camp, Kinalia soccer camp, Beckenbauer soccer camp, the Cosmos soccer camp. And the Cosmos would come and scrimmage. And so the first week I'm there, I'm sitting on the sidelines. They need one or two. They pull me in and I'm suddenly playing with Sanino and uh, Carlos Alberto and all these players, Naskins, which there is not another country in the world where that could happen. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, and so I, I thanked him for, for this wonderful chapter in my life where I, I had these great stories where I, I got to play with these people. It was absurd. How'd you play? I, you know, I actually, I'm telling you, I played well because I played simple and as I would check back to the ball or, or try to create some space, 
there were two or three options to pass to. Yeah. It's just like, get rid of it. You know, and I, I always say that as players, you, you play at a certain level. If you're sort of playing above your head, you play simply, right? Yeah. And when you go, when you go down a level, you think you should change your game and you shouldn't, you should continue to play simply. Um, and I, you know, I'd go down a, a level or two or go back to college. I'd be holding the ball, trying to, trying to be Marco Echeverry or something. And, and <laughs> it would always bite me in the ass, you know? So um, well, I'd say I, some of the diversity that you're talking about, you know, in the staff there, I mean, that's something I don't think Paul Gardner gets enough, uh, respect for or light for is he challenged the establishment for decades about making sure there was diversity in the u.s soccer landscape you know we now have a better version of what we had before um but he would challenge you know that there were coaches being represented the player pools were being representative and going us going into all the communities of america to try to pull, pull out the best possible talent and not just look at you know, the suburbia kind of a talent pool, right. You know, to go outside of club soccer and find out that, you know, the inner cities and whatnot and try to find the best possible players. And he was, he was flying that flag for a long time. Yeah. And you know, we've made a lot of progress in that regard, but like you said, it was a suburban game. It was sort of a prep school game, soccer for a long time there. Uh, And then there were these untapped communities because I, I know when I got to a certain level, some, some Hispanic kid would come out of the woodwork and be like, where has he been? Right. This, yeah. This you think you're time. good. And then this kid shows yeah. up and you're like, what? And he's like, yeah. yeah and there's 10 of us. There's 10 of me over here. Yeah. And you're like, exactly. damn. Cause you get to the sort of the national pool level um, on an amateur status and you kind of know each other. There's, there's a pool about yeah. maybe 40 guys who know each other and you're all sort of jockeying for those top, those top spots. But uh you know, he did. And if you look at the U.S. national team now, it is diverse. And I think there were two different different things. Um, you know, one is the the Hispanic player. They were playing. They were playing well, but they were playing in their small communities, wherever they were. And sort of they didn't know what else was out there or we didn't know what was out there. I guess you could say the African-American community was very different because, you know, I played with a lot of players of color, but they were generally Haitian or Caribbean or or columbia so um uh it's and now you look at the national team now there's color on that team and it more reflective of the united states and uh, uh it's great to see yeah so we go way back when uh you know i was telling our producer ken from octane media before i got on here that uh there was one game a week and it was on pbs and i think they used to fly the film over you know or, or on, a, on the, the queen mary or something to come over and that's all we'd get to watch kids today I sound like the old man, but there's a ton of soccer to watch, and it wasn't always like that. And the people that were sitting at that table last night were a huge, huge part of that. So really yeah. excited to talk to Paul, and, and he's with Mike, so it'll be, a, it'll be a fun interview. There's too much to talk about with Paul, really. Yeah, it's too many decades of coverage, but I will have to cherry pick some questions. All right, cool. So um, let's take a break here, and when we come back, we're going to be joined with uh, with Paul Gardner, who's celebrating his 92nd birthday, a, a, a living legend. And he'll be along with Mike Wojtola in just a bit. You're listening to Over the Ball. Call or text us at 424-229-2247. That's 424-229-2247. All right, joining us now, very excited about this. As I said, this is a very special edition of Over the Ball. Joining us now uh, on his 92nd birthday, uh, the legendary Paul Garner. Paul, welcome back to Over the Ball, my friend. How are you? Uh, I'm 92 years old. I don't have to <laughs> say more than that. It's not, it's not a condition that um, I recommend. 
put it that way. <laughs> well, I tell you something, you wear it well, because uh, I walked, I think, six or seven blocks with you up, uh, up Columbus Avenue last night in New York and back, and you were on your feet for hours, and uh, Mike Wojtola was with us, and, and he was starting us, you know, breathing heavy. He was falling behind. And, well, he had uh, a lot to do. I didn't have anything to do other, other than be 92, <laughs> that's all. Well, I was telling everyone about that table that we had there last night that was there for your, in your honor and just so much soccer history that was there. Uh, and I was talking to Jim Trecker. He said, gee, you know, people think that the soccer in this country started in 1994. I'm like, they don't even go back that far sometimes, but they, you know, they don't realize uh, how lonely it was at times when you first started uh, this game. Uh, and bringing it to this country uh, in a sense, in a journalistic sense, and covering it. Um, some of my very first memories of soccer were you with Jim McKay. And and uh, when I met you, I felt like I was meeting Elvis for the first time as a soccer player. Uh, and that then a to be, That is a huge compliment. Uh, oh, and I, I, that, yeah. But but you know there you are sitting and all the people that were there uh, last night to to honor you and they're your, they're all your close friends. Um, I, I mentioned you know Sunil and Tab and, and Laurie Mifflin and all the people that were at the table last night. Um, talk a little bit about how you came over to this country. Uh, you didn't even play soccer when you were a kid unless it was uh, informal, right? You didn't play it at your school. We had uh, most of it was informal. Yeah, we didn't. There was no official soccer team at the school I went to, we the, we, the boys, we formed our own, we made our own fixtures and we had to do it really in secret because uh, the only time we could play was weekends and that was when the school games, uh, the other sports were on and, um, you know, they, they would have been very upset if they knew we played Saturday mornings when we were supposed to turn out for the school at, at rugby or whatever it was. Uh, rugby and field hockey were, were the sports of that season. Amazing. I played both badly, uh, <laughs> but not as badly as I played soccer, I'll tell you. I think well, most good journalists were great players. I think that's the way it was. Uh, but you transitioned. Now, how did you come to the United States? Now, I, you know, obviously know how you... I mean, how literally? On a boat. On a boat. Now, nine I, days. I think they boat. call it a ship. Nine days on a Dutch boat. Nine days of Dutch cooking. It's a wonder I survived. <laughs> well, you did. So they did something right there. So you, you came over, and this surprised me. I, I talked to Mike a little bit about it. You came over uh, writing about from for medical journals originally? I'd been working in London for six years on a, what, what was basically a pharmaceutical journal. Uh, when I got here, I was very, very lucky indeed, extremely lucky that within, within a few weeks of arriving here, I got a well-paid job on a medical magazine here in New York, but with an office in Montreal. I did a lot of traveling between, suddenly, between New York and Montreal, overnight trains and everything. So yeah, I landed well and squarely on my feet uh, when I got here. So I continued to do the, the medical type writing and also a lot of cultural writing. It was a cultural medical magazine. Unique, yeah. But you did stories on Mickey Mantle and uh, I think I think Roger Maris, and you know you were. Well, what, what I what I decided to do. I mean, I wasn't coming here for the soccer. That was the last thing in my mind. I'd have been yeah. I've been utterly stupid at that era to be coming here and uh, try and get anything out of soccer. I I would right. I sort of thought I realized I understood that I was in a sense giving it up 
So I thought that I would uh, want to understand America more. Another way to understand American behavior, an easy one for me, was to learn American sports. And I did go out of my way to, to follow baseball, football, not so much basketball, but baseball and football. And then I started writing about them back, sending stories back to England about American sports, um, sort of posing as an English expert in, uh, in, in New York. It worked out very well, actually, because I did learn quite a lot about the sports. Now, how did you transition to soccer in America? I mean, it was in the, the late 60s, right, when Listen, the, the emergence? It, when I was working on the pharmaceutical magazine in, in London, we organized a, um, a survey at one point of students of pharmacy. And one of the questions we asked was, how did you get into pharmacy? And the best answer we had was from a guy who said, I was misinformed. <laughs> so there, there, was something, there was something of that about getting in, in, into soccer here. I mean, that didn't really happen. <clears throat> I spent four years on a medical magazine and I went to live in uh, Italy for a couple of years. And then when I came back, I landed in the midst of all the 67, 68, business of the new pro league starting up and everything about which I knew absolutely nothing. That was a complete surprise to me. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, I think you had I, a bunch of here without a job. So I started to sort of ask around and um, I discovered that uh, I was an expert on soccer. Well, you were English and, uh, you know, so well, I know my first memories. Chris, what was your first memories? Of pretty stupid reasoning, but there it was. I wasn't about Chris, to know. Chris, what was your first, uh, you know, uh, uh, dealings with with the great Paul Gardner. Yeah, yeah. No, just growing up in Brooklyn and and getting into oh, that. Brooklyn. I, I'm I'm in favor of Brooklyn. Yeah, yeah. Born and raised, uh, and then being a soccer person and trying to find content and and coming across Soccer America and having to read you. That's that was my first introduction to it. Uh, so thank you, because uh, not just me, but many people that, that you were, uh, you know, pre-internet, pre-social media, this was our way of understanding football in our landscape and globally as well. So all the content that you provided really helped uh, our generation to come through the ranks, you know, so thank you for that. But I'm also curious as to how you connected with Soccer America. What was the origin of that? Well, I mean, I was always very interested in the sport. And, and while I was working on that medical magazine here in Midtown Manhattan, and at lunchtimes, I, I remember I went down looking for the headquarters of the United States Soccer Football Association, which it then was. And um, they were downtown, very near the Empire State Building, near, but not in. And the area near that was not a particularly great area. They had a walk-up office which i eventually found uh and one lunchtime i walked there and i walked in i walked up the stairs and i opened the office door and there was not a person to be seen and it looked dusty and musty like it might not have been used <laughs> for years so i shouted and nothing happened and i shouted again and a very irascible voice from the back said who's that who's that what do you want what do you want and it was uh the famous Joe Barriskill, who was the general secretary, as Irish as they come, thick, thick Irish accent, and really not welcoming at all. <laughs> what are you sort of doing here? Who the hell is Paul Gardner? What's this all about? It wasn't used to having 
people coming in trying to find out things about them. Right. So in the end, he gave me a pile of uh, literature and leaflets and all sorts of stuff that I brought home. But that that really started some rather vague at that point um, connection with the official side of the sport here. And I'd been able to sort out various ethnic games in Brooklyn a lot of them. Actually, Italian American League was was active. And on Sundays, I used to venture into the wildest Brooklyn to, to find these games. And there were high school games. And God forbid, there were college games, which was absolutely awful. I mean, I really did feel that, that this was the end of the earth, that, 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 that I had to come and watch. Well, I didn't have to, but I chose to watch these games who were playing with two referees and all sorts of rules that I couldn't understand, substitution. Which was unheard of in the main sport at that platoon time. subbing, no less. You well, know, it's five it's, six guys at once. About, there, there was some sort of pull with with college soccer because, despite the game itself, it it was a pleasant experience. You know, you I didn't expect any sort of um, yobbos and wild boys running around uh, banging people on the heads and shouting bad words. You never get it. Was a very polite experience and. The soccer could be almost ignored because of that. So I, I enjoyed that. I enjoyed that part, but not the sport, mind you. I still found right. it execrable. So let me jump in here, Paul. I think, uh, you know, before you got on, Chris and I were talking about, you know, Chris, Chris, you did a lot for the college game. I think the fact that you, you did criticize, you know, criticize it, you supported it, though, and said, look, we need to develop this game in this country, and that's one of the ways. So, um so that uh, we both thank you for that because we both had great college experiences uh, because the game was growing in this country, not fast enough for any of us. Uh, that's for sure. But I want to get to some of the sort of the big flashy things you did. Um, I mean, with Pele, uh, you worked on that very first Pele movie that was here. Talk a little bit about that. And then we'll get to Beckenbauer because you became basically kind of a this friend is, of Beckenbauer. This is the, uh, the instructional films. Yes. Yes. Yeah, um, that sort of came out of the blue. I got a I got a phone call one day. I forget who it was. Somebody at uh, Pepsi saying they were doing that. They signed Pelé, and uh, they were going to do these instructional films, and they wanted a uh, an outline of what the film should be. So I mean, well, I mean, any journalist can write an outline. I'm good at that. You know, nothing results from that. So I sent that off, yeah. and very quickly they got back to me. And without actually saying they accepted it, they just said, well, the next step is this, you know, and now we need a script. So I said, I did that and sent that off and didn't hear anything for a while. And the next call I got sometime later was uh, that I should drop everything and come down to Brazil immediately because they started filming down there. <laughs> um so, and I was told the marvelous, wonderful, never to be forgotten by me, Professor Mazzei, who was the sort of right hand, left hand man of, um, of, of Pelé there. I was told that I would meet him down there and he was the technical expert and I should bow to everything he wanted and everything because the story was without. Without Mazzei, there would be no police. So I, no I was not yeah. to offend him anyway. So I was more than intimidated when I got off the plane in uh, in Brazil. 
But of course, he couldn't have been nicer. He's the most wonderful person and taught me so much about, um, you know, South American soccer, about which I knew very little. And that failing, not knowing anything about South American soccer, was very widespread and unfortunately still is. Well, I, I, yeah, but I think you've also been a proponent of that. I mean, you've been a, a supporter of that. Again, before you came on, Chris and I were talking about uh, when I sort of got to the, the uh, amateur national level, uh, the Hispanic kids were not a part of it. It was like they weren't. And, and one kid would suddenly play. We'd be like, who is this and where has he been? So you uh, you have always supported that as well. But I, I want to move on, too, because you were also the first a uh, person to uh, interview Beckenbauer here upon his arrival in the United States, the great uh, Kaiser Franz. Talk about that a little bit. Yes, I was by uh, Clive Toy, the, the, uh, the Cosmos general manager at the time. He'd been in touch with me throughout the process of him recruiting Beckenbauer. So I knew quite a lot about it. I, I was uh, I was told, you know, this was off the record because nobody should know about it. So I didn't write about it at that time. Yeah. Um, so I got, yeah, pretty close to Beckenbauer immediately after a ride. I went to see him in his hotel in Midtown Manhattan. And, um, you know, he was immediately talking very good English to me. Yeah. And I, at some point, I complimented it on his English. And his face sort of took on a serious aspect. And he said, oh, no, no, not, not really. He said, we're having a lot of trouble. We, you know, in, in the hotel, it's very difficult. My um, English is not good enough. Well, that's what it was. It had nothing to do with Beckenbauer. In fact, the matter of 99% of the people working in the hotel were not Americans. They were... <laughs> they couldn't speak English either. Their English that was bad, not his. We <laughs> left the hotel, walked uptown about four blocks to his first press conference, and there was um, a wonderfully primmed-up lady looking, you know, ready for a Hollywood debut, who was acting as his um, translator. She never got a word in. It just wasn't necessary. Right. His English was... You know, just wonderfully effective right from the word go. And of course, the, most of the talk was about soccer, and he knew all the soccer terms in English. Very absolutely. Well. Yeah. And he, you know, he was a very dignified person. You can tell he's a bit of, a, a bit of an intellect, but I think that's hysterical because you know you go to a foreign country, and you think you know their language, but then it feel like you don't. And then it turns out the guy's speaking Spanish or Polish right. or Italian or whatever, <laughs> and they can't understand. Turns out your that you know it damn well. He, 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 he nobody ever questioned. Um, Beckenbauer's command of English. It was excellent. Right. And, and so talk about another one. I love that anecdote because this is so funny. Um, but also uh, your interview with Maradona. Um, and you hung out with him a little bit. I mean, man. Um, you, you I did, yeah, I did an interview with Maradona, which actually I've got on tape somewhere. But I don't know where it is at the moment. So that's a hidden treasure for somebody to find later. Um some years later, when he was, uh, I, he was in the, he was in mid-career. He was about to move to Naples. He'd been with Barcelona. It was that whatever year that was. Eighty-six, um, I think, probably. Yeah. Right before the eighty-six World Cup. Yeah. Getting ready for that. I think it was before the eighty-six World Cup. Yeah. And then eighty-five, you uh, you were with his father and his brother in China. Well, yes, I got to know his. I got to know his father quite well because in 85, 1985 was the first under-17 
was what was it under 16 actually with the theoretically 17 world cup more or less yeah yeah you you know the the under 17 which it came under under 17 world cup in china so um uh-huh. i gave up trying to learn chinese and just uh, just went there anyway and on the plane there were several of the under 17 teams including argentina's under 17 and wow. on that team was uh, hugo maradona the younger brother of diego and Mr. and Mrs. Maradona. And I got speaking to his father on the plane. And, I, you know, I found him really interesting because he was so down to earth. So I don't want to make this sound derogatory. Uh, it's not, in my estimation, it's exactly the opposite. Sounded so working class uh, yeah. that I, I immediately struck up some sort of bomb with him and thought, you know, I'd like to do something about this later well of course once we'd landed in uh, in china we dispersed and i i guess i thought i wasn't going to see any more of them until uh, two or three days later they organized a trip around the um whatever it was called the national museum which was of course uh, basically a huge monster multi-room tribute to mao zedong uh, and everywhere you went was mao this and mao that and so on and this went on and on and on until i thought i was going to drop down dead before i ever reached the exit and finally um i did reach the exit and there was the room was sort of empty but in the middle of it there was standing freestanding on his own was a sort of large urn of some sort but no no indication with it with a with a caption or a label on it as to what it was and lo and behold standing next to it staring at it was um senor maradona so i looked wow. at him and we you know we smiled at each other in recognition and so on and i asked him i said What's this? You know, looking around, walking around it to see what it was. They're not a urinal. He said, <laughs> he looked at me and he said, that's, um, that's the pot that Mao pissed in. <laughs> oh, I stepped on your story. I'm sorry. I didn't think that was going to be the ending of it anyway. I apologize. I think you Paul. wrote my story about it years ago. And you <laughs> no, I, I'm not sure, but that's, uh, that's well, hysterical. Well, you followed it. I, of course, being of a much uh, uh, clean living uh, background, didn't I think of any such thing. But it was a lovely uh, remark, and I, I've always remembered it because what it reminded me of, and transposing this to Diego, it sounded like what I was used to in London, where I used to spend a, a great deal of time with working class boys, working class families. And there is a perception of the, the Londoners, the Cockneys. Mm-hmm. You talk about the perky, perkiness, as the word, the perkiness of, of the Cockney boys, yeah, that they're, um, they're irreverent. They make fun right. of everything, you know. And here was, right. here was a man from a million miles from being a cockney but at the same time the spirit was there and i think that spirit translated into diego i think he could have been a perky cockney cockney lad his famous remark that um, he made before a game against germany don't remember which game i don't think it was a final it was some other maybe a exhibition game and he told the press beforehand that we'll, we'll win now picardia I don't know exactly what the translation of that word is, but it comes out something like more trickery, more slyness, more sneakiness, more cleverness, something like right. that. And that really does, again, lay out something before me which smacks of the 
the the Cockney boys. Well, you know, you, we also, and you know, you and I last night had talked a little bit about the English game back in those days before oh, everyone was, yeah, was exposed to this sort of, you know, South and Central American style or the Brazilian style where it was pretty much, you know, Route 95 up and down, knock it forward, get stuck on a mixer, you know, just, uh, and probably that's what we, Diego was referring to, you know, the sort of the creativity. Uh, no, the no doubt about it at all. I mean, it was it must have been wildly obvious to them, and it had been made obvious to the Europeans many years before that. But the Europeans never responded. The first, uh, their first vision of real South American soccer was Uruguay in the 30, uh, 30 World Cup and in the Olympics before that, when the Uruguay beat everybody. Playing a sort of soccer which was not common in Europe, but uh, nobody thought to go out and copy it in those days. Yeah. It's it's interesting you mentioned that because talking to Tab Ramos last night, you know, just like we talked again before you got on about you know probably probably not even arguably the greatest player that America's produced, uh, one of them anyway. Uh, he was like, I didn't even know those skills existed because he said I would have been in my backyard practicing them. Uh, you know, some of the things that were done with the ball. Um, so, you know, the world's game has certainly changed and it, it's changed here as well. All the kids get to watch soccer now all the time. But so let's talk about youth a little bit. Um, you, you've covered, you know, the under 17 World Cups, which is this really big phenomenon, mostly around the world. You, you, you identify players early and things there. Well, most um, of the players are you were way ahead of the game. Didn't go yeah. anywhere. So. <laughs> yeah. Well, 89, the USC beat, beat uh, well, Brazil, well, right? That, that's Mike here. Um, the fact that Paul went to every U-17 World Cup when they started in 85 um, enabled him and Soccer America to cover players like Landon Donovan long before everybody else knew about them and also uh, um, you know, develop a relationship with them. So when they were famous, they remembered that we were there. Um, but also I think um, that that was a level of play where I think Paul could talk, speak to this it hasn't been overcoached yet. Maybe it is now, but when you know, there's an attraction to watching kids play at that age. Oh, it's a good point. I think I've advocated that they should lower the age. It should be an under 16 World Cup now. Right. Before the coaches, uh, sorry, coaches, before the coaches get to those kids. And also before the kids are part of uh, working parts, so to speak, of any pro team, then you, uh, you get rid of another problem which has slowly come on the scene. It's been there all the time for the under-18s. The, the pro teams, they want these players. They don't release them for the World Cup. If you make that under-16 World Cup, that problem virtually disappears. Goes yeah. away. Chris, yeah. what do you think of that as far as the development of... Yeah, well, I have a question just of Paul's experience. And, and you know, if we go on television today, we hear Pep Guardiola being lauded as a genius. You know, in the decades that you've followed football... Are there coaches, in your opinion, that for what they did or didn't do, created the best possible teams that you feel were, you know, really fantastic managers? Maybe them, maybe some of the names you have are going to mention are, are famous names, but maybe some of them are not. I'm curious who you, over the years, really felt did a great job in football as a manager. Listen, the in terms of youth teams, the youth team that most impressed me and still does when I think about it were, was the Bolivian, the Bolivians from uh, Tawichi, who played an astonishingly intelligent and skilled uh, form of the game, which was way above anything that was being played in England at the time, even at the top pro level, the top, you know, we, the, the 
Premier League hadn't been created yet, and uh, when it did, it it changed a lot. It changed a lot in England there. But yeah, play, very very good players were there to be seen always. Um, I particularly, funnily enough, I particularly remember. I never spoke to him, but I particularly remember him playing was, was Carlos Vela, who is now turned up here late in his yeah. career and showed us exactly what he's got. He's a marvelous player. And he looked so good to me in the uh, World Cup in, what year was that? 2005. In, in Peru, when? 2005. Well, if you say so, I'm sure. I forget these things now. Um, and then uh, I followed him quite closely because of all things, immediately after that World Cup, he was signed by who? By Arsenal? And Arsenal, team yeah. Signing. And the, the signing itself was illegal because he was below the age. FIFA had made it clear that they didn't want players below, I think, the age of 18 and being signed and going to foreign countries. They should stay in their own country. Nobody stood in the way. He went off to Europe. He never really played for Arsenal at all. Wenger had signed him but didn't want to use him once he got him. And he ended up, which helped him, uh, in Spain and, uh, as a loan player and finally as a signed player. But, um, <clears throat> you know, to see a player like that develop, and I did follow him as closely as I could, on television, mostly. Now, of course, I follow him very closely, but this is some 20, 30 years later. <laughs> That's so, funny with, with such a what great was the question. Well, yeah, you had coaches that you admired. I mean, I, you go back to the day when coaches played a different role, right? When, when it, early well, in, in a sense, uh, when I was growing up as a boy, the coaches played no role at all. If, I mean, you, we used to discuss, as schoolboys, we used to discuss teams, our favorite teams and so on. We talked about uh, the games they played and the players they had, but we couldn't have named more than three coaches in the whole league. We, they just weren't a factor. No, nobody considered them a factor. There were two or three coaches in England at the time who, for reasons often outside of coaching, were well known. Um, Shankly and... Uh, what, uh... Well, uh, this goes back an awful long time. But, uh, but you know, as someone who's a... Uh, you know, proof edited Paul Gardner for a long time now. And, you know, when you look at American coaches, there was a point in the history of American soccer in the late 80s and early 90s where Paul Gardner wrote very um, highly of what Bruce Arena was doing at Virginia. Um, that in the past, you had written about a team like the University of San Francisco uh, that played some very high level soccer under Stephen School, but mainly with foreign players. And then Bruce came around um, and those early, those teams in the nineties, I believe, if I remember right, Paul, you, you know, you did admire the way they played and, and, and their type of soccer. Or something different. Yeah. Sure. Claudia was there, uh, Claudia Arena and uh, mm -hmm. a bunch of players that came out of there. I remember watching them. They were definitely playing at a higher level than most college teams by far. Well, Bruce, Bruce Arena was, was unique without a doubt. Probably still is, I suppose. Really. Still is, yeah. The first interview I had with him was at a college final four. And um, he wasn't supposed to be in the in the room at all. He was a player, goalkeeper of all people, nearly a wow. player, put it a half player. <laughs> and I went to interview, the, who was the coach? Dan Wood, was it? Of Cornell, it was. Yeah, Cornell was there. Ziggy Schmidt was there with UCLA. St. Louis with Jimmy. Now, who was the coach of um, Cornell then? Was it Dan, Dan Wood is the name that comes to me. Sounds anyway, good. I was supposed to interview the coach. So I, I go in and there is uh, the coach sitting there. And over here is, who's that? Oh, that, this is my goalkeeper and so on. Do you mind if he sits in? 
and I said, you know, no, providing he doesn't uh, interrupt. Fine, so right in. But yeah. of course, he did. He had things to say, and um, you know, they, they were intelligent enough things. So here was a guy who was still a student, sitting in on his coach's interview with uh, with, with this marvelous soccer America journalist here. He was, uh, was so he had, a, he had a soccer he, mind. He knew his own that. mind. He knew what he wanted. Right. Yeah. That, that Which helped. is. Which is a sign of a good, uh, a good coach. And of course, living in New York City, there's always a garbage truck backing up uh, wherever we go in, in this world. Um, how about Bora in 1994? That was an interesting um, whole coaching dynamic. I got to witness it, you know, up close. Um, what were your thoughts there? An interesting coaching dynamic. <laughs> it was. I'm not going to ask you to explain it. So. <laughs> Bora, uh, it was like the Dallas Cup, I think, where Paul was introduced to Bora. Bora had just been hired. It's a big, huge signing, right? Um, yeah. Lukinovich was going to take over the U.S. for the World Cup. No, I, th I think I met Bora before. You did meet him in, I believe, probably in 86, at least, when he was a Mexico coach. Yeah. But if I remember right, the agent came up and to, to, to introduce Bora and went up to Paul Gardner and said, uh, oh, you're Paul Gardner. I believe you're the main man. And Paul said, that's very nice that he's say, saying I'm the main man. And he yeah, then he realized he says, you're the mean man. <laughs> wow. I don't remember. <laughs> Paul, well, Paul, again, I was talking to Chris about, we were talking about you before. Uh, it took me a while to your sense of humor is more dry and sarcastic. And uh, once you get it, every you get it. So it's uh, funny. But I mean, you, we were talking about how uh, no one, I never wanted to say anything bad about soccer, how something was happening, because there were too many other people who would just throw slings and arrows at soccer, you know, trying to, you know, uh, put us down constantly. But at the end, uh, I'm looking now, now we are critical of our sport. We're critical of our, our, uh, our coaches and that's the way it's supposed to be because it's more popular now and there's no free ride. And I think you were the first one to, to, to call it what it was. So, um, what did you think, uh, what do you think of the current national team and, uh, Greg Berhalter? Cause now we've gone from, you know, hiring foreign coaches. We've, we've got a couple of Amer uh, an American now. And um, this is coming a long well, way, I think. My, my feeling is, and I can't back this up elaborately, uh, which I might have mm -hmm. been able to do 20 years ago when I was more au fait with what was going on. My feeling is that the team, uh, for the first time, has more of a balance that I've been waiting for between the physical side and the, the technical side. Yes. Yeah. Horrible words you have to use. Um, mm -hmm. Players, we, we have more skilled players, and we've got in, in the likes of Pulisic and Reina and so on, we have players who are skilled enough to take midfield creative positions. We've only had that before with players who were sort of half immigrants, like players like Tab and so on, there who had a, right. a background oh, yeah. from their parents and so on. There, the only genuine sort of American production we had was Landon, Landon Donovan, who was, was, was remarkable in his way. Absolutely yeah. remarkable. You know, he came out of nowhere with no soccer background at all. And he immediately understood. He understood the game, the patterns of the game, the feel of the game, the rhythms of the game, <clears throat> all of which is very important and which has been lacking amongst American players for a long time. College soccer shares a good deal of responsibility for that because college soccer has always been, to me, um, 
perhaps not to be uh, you know not to be surprised at. It's it's called it's soccer within an academic um, right. arena, so to speak. Here, so the the theoretical side of it, if the dots and crosses side of it, if you like, has always been a big thing amongst um, amongst college coaches, and I've never I've never really um, found that rewarding at all, and I don't think it. Um, I don't think it helps, frankly. I think it um, leads to a misunderstanding of, of the free-flowing, creative, inventive, individual nature of, of the game. That, that's, what it, that's what interests me. Chris uh, and I interviewed Sasha Sarovsky, the head coach of Maryland, a few weeks back about the trying to pass the split season with the NCAA, which not only makes academic sense for the, the, the modern college soccer players to split the seasons half fall, half spring, um, and we're hoping that goes through. What are your thoughts on that? Long pause. Sure that I'm not sure that they're wildly valid at the, at the moment here. I don't want That's to, the problem. I don't want to pontificate yeah. about this, but I mean, you know, <clears throat> the, the first, as I say, the first college soccer I saw was a Columbia University game, actually. Um, I, I didn't go back, just that one game. That's all was enough. Yeah. I didn't go back to college soccer for probably as long as 10 years when, when I got sort of reintroduced to it by um, Dave Hershey, who's another, another journalist, um, a real journalist, um, <laughs> and a good one. And he, he took me back to it there. Um, I think college soccer would have been, could still be a hell of a lot better if it weren't so European-oriented. Um, and of course, maybe the demon here, one of the demons, the two of the demons are German soccer, which is very well organized and, and very intelligent and Dutch soccer, which came on the scene late, uh, which, which was apparently to be understood by understanding a particular, understanding a particular formation, understanding what this player did and that player did and so on. Right. You know, all of which is very interesting. I don't know whether it helps in watching a game, whether you get excitement out of that. Oh, look, he's moved to, you know, he's playing a, a what's the new term that I hate so much? False nine. Oh, he's playing a false, false nine. nine. Oh, we all hate that. I don't even know the numbers. Okay. Why, what the hell can it mean, for God's sake? What's exactly. a real number nine? You know, and why aren't you using a real number nine? And so, I mean, I, I can go into the background of that considerably because I know how that started. And those stupid terms... Force number nine, and the one preceded it, a withdrawn centre forward, <laughs> which is, you know, like the pregnant virgin. You either are a centre forward or you're not. If you're not, you know. if you're withdrawn, you're not a forward. So I, 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 I like this, Paul, because for me as a player, it's always confused me. And so, I, you know, and even my nephew was playing basketball and he was, they wanted to, they wanted him to play point guard. And he goes, I'm not a number one. I'm a three or I'm a, I'm a shooting two. I'm like, what are you talking about? There's five guys on the court. Uh, you, you know, the tall guys sort of move under the bucket. The big guys bring the, the little guys bring the ball up. So we, we could, we should actually do a show on that whole number nine thing, uh, Chris, because Chris knows all the terms because he's, he's in there. He's in the trenches right now. I otherwise praise for the way they play. So they still stick to numbers. You know, he's right. an Oh, yeah. You're very on the shirt. Well, we're going to have to wrap it up here. But, Paul, let me ask you this. What what makes you happy uh, about soccer today? Uh, unfortunately, not too much. I'm. Uh, <laughs> that is a typical Paul Gardner answer. Well, I love it. I, I'm, I love it. For the first time in my life, 
in my um, 92 years, um, I am very, very disillusioned with what's happening at the top levels of the game. And that, that revolves around the fact that I see no reaction from the top level of the sport to what is obviously a very serious increasing crisis in the question of head injuries and concussions. Oh. There is a big problem here. With it here. Coming. It's not even here at its full force yet. And yeah. if you're going to look at all the sports and say, which one would you expect to have the biggest problem? You're going to point your fingers immediately at soccer because it's the only one out of all the sports that allows, encourages, insists that you use your head to play the ball. No other sport does that. Yeah. How can soccer not be heavily involved in this? And yet they have not made one single move, not one, to dimin- attempt to diminish the number of heading incidents during a game. And they could do that very, very easily. And they haven't done it. They haven't even made a statement about it. They go on and on about their damn protocol, which is ludicrous because the protocol doesn't happen until after the injury has occurred. Occurred, right. Not the injuries at all. You just get a good point. He had, tell them what your your parallel thing was because it was good about the street and the ambulance and so on. It's Mike Waitola. Yes, I can't remember that right now. Well, Mike, I, what I think is what I think is happening you, right now, you guys, said it's is like you you have a street where there are a lot of accidents occurring, right? And instead of putting up, slow down, putting speed bumps, having a cop at the beginning of the street, well, instead of doing any of that, all you do is you park an ambulance at the end of the street, and you tell the the set civilians who are getting knocked down and the cars are having accidents, you tell them, well, you'll still have accidents, you'll still be knocked down, but. We, we got good treatment for you immediately, on hand, immediately. That's what the protocol is. It's, it's, uh, it's almost a gimmick, and it's being used as a shield uh, while they don't do anything where it really matters. They need to take a look at the rules of the game and stop getting people, letting people get injured. Look, we hear about the top people. When, when the top pros happen, when it happens to them, we hear about it, that's for sure. Bad injuries, right. Premier League players, we know. What about the tens, hundreds, Kids. millions yeah. of yeah. young players, boys and girls who are playing all over the world in Guatemala, El Salvador, India? What happens to them? Do they not get injured and in heading the ball? Of course they do. Who knows? Right. About it? We don't. And yet those right. people well, me... suffer the same sort of thing later in life. And the sport does nothing. It's done nothing whatever to counter that. And I find that as I say, very disappointing, and it's it's inhumane, and frankly, ultimately, it's immoral. So, All right, we're going to have to wrap uh, it up there. So, so let, let, let me make a point here, Paul, uh, as we wrap up here. Uh, two points. Um, interesting answer, because the question was, what makes you happy about soccer today? <laughs> <laughs> well, the the second point is, wait, I got to say this. Mike Oitola, when the 92-year-old man is uh, filling your memory, uh, boy, you better you better stop heading the ball, my friend. <laughs> Paul is Paul is sharper than all of us at this uh, at this broadcast. One, one thing that that is interesting about Paul Gardner's history with soccer in the United States is that the quality of his writing made a big impact on the game here because. Paul reported about American soccer from the get-go to major European magazines, whether it's mm-hmm. London or World Soccer. He reported about soccer 
in Soccer America and also major papers in the United States. It happened to be someone who's one of the best writers in the world, no matter what he's writing about. And that really made a big difference. You know, it's one thing if somebody tries right. to write and is okay. It's another thing when that writer happens to be such a well-skilled writer. And I think that's something that was, was really, really important about, and still is important about Paul's career. Here, here. Uh, well, thank Paul, you. Gardner, <laughs> Paul Gardner, uh, I just want to say what an honor it was to, uh, to have met you that first time, to become a friend of yours, uh, to, to have the ability to thank you for all you did for this game. It's changed my life, uh, the journey that I've had. I, uh, talking to Chris, I, I think, Chris, you, you've had the, the same feelings. Um, it felt like we were being represented uh, not only discovering a game and appreciating a game, but but someone was out there looking out for our, our best interests for this game that we love. Uh, Paul Gardner from uh, Soccer America and from so much more. Uh, I'm going to have to look back and, and read some of your medical writings, uh, you know, which is probably gives you your perspective on the on the concussions as well. But thank you so much for joining us on Over the Ball. As I said last night, the dinner that was assembled was a living history of this game. Uh, and the, the journey that it's taken in every single asset and facet. And you uh, were sitting at the head of the table. You were the, the main dude. You've, you've touched a lot of lives. Uh, it's been an amazing life and you've got, uh, you've got more to live. So I appreciate you being on Over the Ball and, and talking to us today. Paul Gardner, thank you so much. And Mike, help, uh, thanks for help arranging it. It's, it. it's really been wonderful. Kevin, can I just tell you what makes me feel good about soccer? In these days? I can do it in one word, messy. Yes. And everything yes. he stands for, everything he's accomplished, everything he does on the field. That encapsulates just about everything that when I watch a game, if Messi's playing, I know I'm going to enjoy it. All right. We ended on an incredibly positive note uh, for, for a great man, a great journalist, and uh, we appreciate it so much. Uh, thanks a lot, you guys. Talk to you again on Over the Ball. Chris, how wonderful was that to uh, to be able to talk to uh, just and, and ask questions to a living legend like that? It's uh, and you know, like you, you really brought it up. Like, yeah, people people really dislike some of his writings or his opinions, but damn it, man, he had opinions, and those are good. It, it creates conversation. Yeah, specifically in the college game, I think he pushed to the point where he maybe created enemies, but he also raised the bar. You know, by by shining some light on, let's say, Bruce Arena's teams at UVA and how they played soccer, and yeah, kind of letting it. people know, hey, can't we do better than this? Can we all play better level than just you know this older school fundamental way and have a more sophistication to our game? And why can't we bring in players to help us play those ways? And that's a constant battle. But I think as as the content came more into our country and we got to watch more and do more we've learned more as coaches but at the same time he was one of those early you know journalists who was beating that drum that their their canon should be more to what we do and and that was the starting point for me and many many coaches um to try to open our minds to what's next fantastic and i think you know for me i was even more impressed that there was someone who had that attitude and opinion and he was english 
because it was in, the English style dominated what we kind of had to deal with here in this country, knock it forward, get us stuck in the mixer. So when English guys taking on the English game or the lack of creativity, uh, and you look at the Premier League today, it has all that South Central and, and European influence in it, and which makes it, you know, such a great league and so fun to watch. So, uh, so it was really wonderful. So um, I, I could have talked to him all day. You know, we had yeah. a, we had a we had a hop. So, um, but I, I appreciate uh, Soccer America, who's of course one of our sponsors, and we get access to guys like Paul. Thank goodness because of uh, because of our relationship with them. But uh, but that was really great. So I'd like to thank Soccer America, Mike Waitola, for setting that up. For Christopher Shamides and Kevin Flynn, uh, we'll talk to you next time on Over the Ball, everyone. Chris, how wonderful was that to uh, to be able to talk to a, just an, and ask questions to a living legend like that? It's uh, and you know, like you, you really brought it up. Like, yeah, people people really dislike some of his writings or his opinions, but damn it, man, he had opinions, and those are good. It, it creates conversation. Yeah, specifically in the college game, I think he pushed to the point where he maybe created enemies but he also raised the bar you know by by shining some light on let's say bruce arena's teams at uva and how they played soccer and yeah kind of letting people know hey can't we do better than this can we all play better level than just you know this older school fundamental way and have a more sophistication to our game and why can't we bring in players to help us play those ways and that's a constant battle but i think as as the content came more into our country and we got to watch more and do more we've learned more as coaches but at the same time he was one of those early you know journalists who was beating that drum that their their canon should be more to what we do and and that was the starting point for me and many many coaches um to try to open our minds to what's next fantastic and i think you know for me i was even more impressed that there was someone who had that attitude and opinion and he was english because it was in, the English style dominated what we kind of had to deal with here in this country, knock it forward, get us stuck in the mixer. So when English guys taking on the English game or the lack of creativity, uh, and you look at the Premier League today, it has all that South Central and, and European influence in it, and which makes it you know such a great league and so fun to watch. So uh, so it was really wonderful. So um, I, I could have talked to him all day. You know, we had yeah. a, we had a we had a hop. So um, but I, I appreciate uh, Soccer America, who's of course one of our sponsors, and we get access to guys like Paul. Thank goodness because of uh, because of our relationship with them. But uh, but that was really great. So I'd like to thank Soccer America, Mike Waitola, for setting that up. For Christopher Shamides and Kevin Flynn, uh, we'll talk to you next time on Over the Ball, everyone.